0: New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today, we are continuing our study series we've called, But What About? Because a lot of time you hear questions like, But what about angels and demons? Or, what about heaven and hell? Unfortunately, we live in an age where a lot of people who identify as being Christian are unfamiliar with the specifics of the faith they claim. This means many people either do not understand or cannot explain the basic tenets that make Christianity unique. This is particularly true with elements of the Christian faith that pertain to the nature of God and the supernatural realm. Obviously, the remedy to this problem is to see what the Bible actually has to say about them. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., last time we began our look at the third person of the Divine Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Can you give us a brief overview of some of the things we discussed?
2: I'd be glad to. But before we get started, I would like to say a word of greeting and thanks to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. We really appreciate you joining us on these episodes because we know that it reflects that you are really interested in studying the Bible and knowing more about the Bible. A lot of the topics that we discuss on Anchored by Truth are not ones that you would hear in most ordinary Bible studies. So we know if you come to Anchored by Truth, it's because you're serious about your faith. And you're also serious about being willing to listen to someone who is going to cover parts of the Christian faith that sometimes other people will not normally think about or talk about. Now, a lot of Christians, they're very sincere about their faith, but not always people who would identify themselves as experts being able to explain some of the doctrines of the Christian faith. Doctrines such as the triune nature of God and the dual nature of Christ Well, these are doctrines that it's not necessarily easy for lay Christians such as myself to be able to explain, but I think we need to grapple with them because if we don't, we're not pressing forward into our faith. We're not maturing in our faith. Now, admittedly, these are doctrines that contain some elements of mystery, and frankly, no human being will ever understand them exhaustively. But the fact that we cannot comprehensively comprehend these doctrines That's not a good reason. That's not an excuse for not applying ourselves to learning what we can. You know, most people can't explain a lot about electricity, but they know enough not to put their hands around a live, bare wire, and they know enough to not throw an electrical appliance into a bathtub.
0: Well, we certainly hope they know that.
2: So, on our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we covered some really important points about the Holy Spirit. First, The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Now, when we say that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, we are not in any way saying that the Holy Spirit is somehow inferior to either the Father or the Son. Saying that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, that's just a form of description or nomenclature, if you will. It's not a hierarchical designation next important thing to know about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force of the variety that is postulated in some of the contemporary science fiction movies. The Holy Spirit makes personal choices and takes personal actions. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, teaches us, transforms us, And the Holy Spirit helps us both personally and individually. So the Holy Spirit, those actions that He takes are definitely those of a person, not of an impersonal force. A third thing to know about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit inhabits every believer the moment that that person accepts Christ as their Savior. Thankfully, in the Kingdom of God, there are no second-class citizens when it comes to being a believer and having the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every person at the instantaneous moment that they accept Christ as their Savior. The Holy Spirit does not play favorites, and the Holy Spirit is as fully present in believers that the world might see as being humble in either their occupation or their abilities as He is in the most famous Christian who has ever lived.
0: And today we want to build on that foundation. I believe you said that you want to think about a couple of the most prominent appearances of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. We heard about one of those appearances in our opening Scripture for today. That was the appearance of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So, let's just take a brief look at the background about Pentecost itself. Pentecost comes from a Greek word meaning 50th. In the Jewish calendar, Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. Well, actually the second day of the feast of Passover, because Passover lasted for a week. Pentecost could be regarded as a supplement to the Passover. The centerpiece of the celebration was the presentation of the two loaves made from the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Other sacrifices were also offered, but until the Pentecostal loaves were offered, the rest of the harvest couldn't be eaten. Pentecost signified the dedication of the harvest to God as its giver.
2: Exactly. Pentecost signified that the harvest time had come. So, in a sense, Pentecost was both a beginning and an end. Pentecost was the end of the planting and growing season and the beginning of the bringing in of the fruits of those labors. And I want to make sure we keep those ideas in mind as we move on to one of the most prominent appearances of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And this is the appearance of the Holy Spirit at the time that Jesus began his public ministry that is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3.
0: Okay, let's listen to the verses you're referring to. This is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In the New Living Translation, those verses say, After his baptism, as Jesus went up out of the water, the heavens were opened, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy.
2: Well, a few things to notice immediately. First, like the verses that we heard from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, and we heard those verses in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, This is a passage of Scripture that clearly demonstrates the triune nature of God. The Son, in His human nature, is on earth being baptized. And then the Spirit descends on the Son in the form of the dove. And then immediately after the Spirit's descent, we hear the Father affirming His approval of His Son. So, just as with the verses in John, where Jesus told his disciples that he was going to ask the Father to send another advocate or comforter, we hear a very clear distinction being made between the three persons of the Trinity.
0: And in the New Living Translation, the verses from John say, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. So in both these passages from Scripture, we see that the three persons of the Trinity clearly interact with each other on the basis of relationship and identity. They all share a single nature, but they all have separate identities, and they perform roles based on their relationship with one another.
2: Yes. The Trinitarian nature of God is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, and as I mentioned earlier, We should all do our best to grapple with it. Now, I know it's not easy, and again, there will always be some level of mystery associated with it for us human beings. But nevertheless, the Trinitarian nature of God is a basic principle of the Christian faith. It's one of those doctrines that distinguishes Christianity from all of the other world's religions. These doctrines are foundational to the coherence of our faith. But now let's move on to another important point that we see from the Matthew passage. You know, in Scripture, the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in a wide variety of guises in His various appearances in Scripture.
0: For instance, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, the Holy Spirit is said to appear as, quote, seven spirits, unquote, that are before the throne of God. And in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 9, The Holy Spirit is described as a stone on which there are seven eyes.
2: Right. So, the Holy Spirit obviously takes on whatever form he deems suitable for the occasion of his appearing. So, one of the questions we should ask ourselves is, why did the Holy Spirit take on the form of a dove on this particular point in Jesus' ministry, which was the point at which he was baptized? And this point in Jesus' ministry was effectively the start of his public ministry.
0: I think that's a very good question. So I expect you probably have some thoughts about the answer.
2: Well, actually I do. You know, let's remember all the way back to the book of Genesis to the biblical flood account. And we hear about the Genesis flood account in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Now, here's a question. What did Noah do as the flood waters were receding
0: from the earth? Oh, I see what you're getting at. Noah released two birds from the window of the ark so they could check and see what was happening on the outside of the ark. The first bird Noah released was a raven. The Bible says the raven kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then Noah sent out a dove. The dove actually went out three times. Each time was a week apart. The first time he came back because the scripture says, quote, the dove could find nowhere to perch, unquote. The second time the dove came back, it had a, quote, freshly plucked olive leaf, unquote, in its beak. And the third time, it didn't return. Evidently, by then, the dove had found plenty of food and places it could land and rest.
2: Right. Now, the raven did not need to come back to Noah because ravens are carrion eaters. The raven could land and feed on dead animals that were either floating on the receding waters or animals that were starting to be exposed on the few parts of the land that were already starting to appear. But doves feed on seeds, grains, fruits, and insects. So on the first couple of flights, the dove was not able to find all that it needed to sustain itself. But when the dove came back on its second flight, The fact that Noah saw that it had an olive leaf, a freshly plucked olive leaf, well, that told Noah that the plant life on the surface of the earth was starting to come back. Well, at this point in the history of redemption, the dove obviously became a symbol of peace because the dove's flights out of the ark marked the end of the flood and the return of a period of growth and harvesting. So the Holy Spirit, when he descended in the form of a dove, that is a very graphic illustration, a very graphic reminder that Jesus came to bring peace between mankind and God.
0: I see what you're saying. This calls to mind the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, which describe the scene of shepherds in the field seeing the vision of angels. The New Living Translation puts it this way, Quote, "suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others the armies of heaven praising god and saying glory to god in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom god is pleased" Unquote.
2: exactly right notice that the angel said peace on earth to those with whom god is pleased then in this passage from matthew we heard the father distinctly say that he is pleased with his son jesus pleased the father not only at the start of his public ministry, but also throughout his entire life. And because Jesus pleased the Father, Jesus was able to bring peace to anyone who would place their trust in Jesus for salvation. So when the Holy Spirit took on the form of a dove at the very start of Jesus' public ministry, that was a graphic way of telling the world that Jesus had arrived to bring peace between the Father and anyone and everyone Who would allow Jesus to become their comforter and advocate?
0: Wow, that's amazing! The Holy Spirit's appearance as a dove at the start of Jesus' public ministry was a graphic punctuation point that for a very long period of time, estrangement between mankind and God was coming to an end. From the time God created the heavens and earth to Jesus' birth was a period of about 4,500 years. During that 4,500 years, God was shaping both histories and cultures to prepare the world for the arrival of the Messiah. So when the Messiah arrived, after all that time, it really did mark a major line of demarcation in the history of the world.
2: Just as the flood of Noah had. But now let's fast forward to the Holy Spirit's appearance at Pentecost. This appearance is after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus by this point had completed his sacrificial work, and the Father had demonstrated that he was satisfied with the work that Jesus had done by Jesus' resurrection. So at the time of Pentecost, Jesus has already returned to the Father. So the fact that Jesus had returned to the Father, and now the Holy Spirit was coming, that also inaugurated a new period in the Grand Saga of Redemption. You know, this was a time after the veil that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple from the rest of the temple. That veil had been torn down and removed. And as the apostles Peter and Paul would very shortly demonstrate, the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, were now welcome to participate in salvation. Prior to Jesus' ministry and death, the plan of salvation had been focused on Israel in the Middle East. But now, well, it becomes available to the whole world.
0: So, let's amplify that point a little. When the Holy Spirit descended by the time Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit only rested on Jesus. But on Pentecost, the Bible says, quote, Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, unquote. At Pentecost, there was a large group of believers who had gathered together in one place. When the Holy Spirit came, he didn't just settle on one or two of the believers, not even the leaders. The Holy Spirit settled on each of them. What a marvelous illustration that the plan of salvation had entered an entirely new era. Now, the Holy Spirit was demonstrating that he would be available to anyone who chose to believe in Jesus as the Messiah.
2: And the beginning of this new era in salvation is demonstrated even further because the Bible tells us that at Pentecost, there were believers from all over the known world that were there to immediately hear the message that the disciples began preaching. The Bible mentions Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Now, we don't have time to go into the specific geography that's covered in that series of territories that is named, but the Holy Spirit, when they came to the believers, and when he landed on each believer, and they immediately began proclaiming the great works of God, there were people from all over the world who were hearing that proclamation, and the territories that are named in that list essentially cover all of the Roman Empire at that time.
0: And the fact that God was beginning a phase of redemption when the gospel would be taken throughout the world is emphasized because all the visitors were hearing the messages being proclaimed in their own language. Acts chapter 2 verse 8 says the people hearing the message were amazed and said, quote, How is it that each of us hears them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues? Unquote.
2: Right. So at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended on each of the individual believers that were present. Now, that would have been amazing enough, but the Holy Spirit did not just settle for inspiring those individual believers. The Holy Spirit inspired those believers to carry the message that salvation was available. He inspired them to carry that message to people who had come from around the world. Now, the territories that were covered in that list include parts of what we would call today Europe, Asia, and Africa. So the Holy Spirit was now descending not just on Jesus, but all the believers. And those believers immediately were carrying that message to other people from around the world. And it's also important to note that at this appearance at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did not appear as a dove, but he appeared as flames or tongues of fire.
0: Well, just as the dove is a symbol of peace, fire is often a symbol of the glory of God and of judgment. For instance, after the Israelites had left Egypt in Exodus, chapter 24, verses 17 and 18, the Bible says, quote, To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, unquote.
2: Right. That was the point in the Exodus when God gave Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, as well as the rest of the law. Well, if you'll remember from the book of Exodus, that while Moses was on the mountain, the Israelites got restless during that 40 days and 40 nights, and they made themselves a golden calf. Well, when Moses came down from the mountain, God pronounced judgment on the idolatry that the people had displayed, and that resulted in the death of 3,000 people. So at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit arrived to demonstrate that Jesus was about to make peace possible between God and man. But at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit arrived to say that everything necessary for that peace had been accomplished. That's the good news, but the bad news is that there would be judgment for those who did not accept the offer of peace.
0: And even Jesus gave that message to Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, Jesus said, God gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil,
2: Yes. During his ministry, Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would come, and he told the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until it happened. Well, when the Holy Spirit arrived at Pentecost, just as Jesus had promised, the Holy Spirit immediately began His work of applying the gospel of salvation to the lives of individual believers. The tongues of fire rested on individual believers. Well, that made the Holy Spirit's appearance as tongues of fire appropriate because just as Jesus said in that passage from Scripture you read, anyone who does not believe has been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Let's note that fire is not just a symbol of judgment; it's also a symbol of illumination, passion, and purification.
0: An example of the Holy Spirit's role in purification and sanctification is Galatians chapter five verses twenty two and twenty three Those verses say, quote, "But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, and self-control, Said another way, as we progress through the Christian life, we should see more and more of these attributes in our lives. Well, we've mentioned a couple of times that without a good understanding of the Holy Spirit, it is difficult, if not impossible, to have a coherent Christian faith, or a coherent worldview for that matter. That's a subject we want to explore in greater depth on our next episode of Anchored by Truth. But in the little time we have remaining, can you give us a glimpse of what you're thinking about?
2: Sure. Now, again, I know that sometimes the Holy Spirit can be a little bit of a mysterious figure to many people. But if God was not an eternal trinity, if there was not the first, second, and third persons of the trinity, it would be very hard, in fact, it would almost be impossible to understand, certain of the attributes that God possesses, such as love and harmony. Love is possible among the three persons of the Trinity because they are separate and distinct from one another when it comes to their relationship. You know, it's hard to see how a God who is not triune could truly express love, especially the kind of love that is willing to sacrifice itself for another. Well, sacrificial love, that's the kind of love Jesus showed to men, but it is also the kind of love that the persons of the Trinity have for one another. It's possible for the members of the Trinity to have a loving relationship because they are separate and distinct from one another. So the Father can truly love the Son, and the Son can truly love the Father, and the Son can truly love the Father so much that the Son was willing to adopt a human nature to demonstrate the Father's love for us. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and so the Spirit is so loving towards the Father and Son that He's willing to come to even rebellious and sinful people To change their hearts so that those people can also begin to participate in this form of eternal love. If the Spirit were not a person, the Spirit could not love in such a way that makes His mission to humanity, His mission to us, understandable. Impersonal forces do not love. But a perfect and Holy Spirit who is concerned for the very being that God created in His own image, well, that kind of person can express that kind of love. Now, all of this can be very difficult for us to understand the first time we hear about it. We need to meditate about it, and we need to pray for the Spirit's wisdom to see its applicability. But this is a necessary discipline, because if we don't undertake this discipline, we're going to miss out on the deepest possible relationship with God. You know, if we ever try to limit Scripture to merely the human ideas or concepts that we possess, it's going to be much harder for us to learn these basic doctrinal precepts of Scripture and it's going to be impossible for us to have a truly coherent faith.
0: Well, as we mentioned, next time we'll turn our attention to some additional elements about the Holy Spirit. We especially want to study how understanding the role of the third person of the Trinity is consistent with and essential to the remarkable unity of Scripture. This sounds like a good time for a prayer, since there is a desperate need in every nation for the wisdom of God to light a path to truth and freedom, today let's pray a prayer for all Christian missionaries, whether they're sent to foreign lands or their next-door neighbor.
1: A Prayer for Christian Missionaries Father of Redemption, you are a powerful and loving God and our ever-faithful tower of refuge and strength. You are a God who takes pleasure in rescuing lost sheep and in bringing them into your kingdom. You are the God of the ends and the means. May all the earth sing praises to your name. Lord, the Bible rightly asks how the lost can hear of the salvation available through Christ's life, death and resurrection, unless preachers are sent to proclaim the gospel. We know they cannot, and today, A great many of your faithful people continue to leave their families and homes to travel to remote corners to preach your message of hope and good news today we want to pray for all these missionaries and to thank you for your provision of them Lord we know that many missionaries preach the gospel in lands where your word is not welcome in fact in some lands to speak about you brings a sentence of death we know that there are many places where government leaders and authorities will exercise the full power of their offices to oppose and persecute your messengers therefore we pray for special protection for all those who preach in these dangerous countries and places we ask that you watch over these missionaries protecting them as they travel and minister, and confounding the efforts of those who seek their harm. We also pray that you give them fertile fields in which to plant your word, which is the seed of true life. We pray that you would open the hearts of those who hear the word. Give them the courage to accept Christ, even as they risk their lives to do so. Bring leaders out of the converted so that ministries and churches, once begun, will continue to grow and expand. Provide the resources the missionaries and churches need to sustain themselves, whether it be Bibles, educational literature, money, or resources for daily living. Show us how you would have us help and serve in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. While not all are called to go or preach, we know that there is a way that all of us can contribute. Help us to be persistent in our prayers and make us fervent in our desire to see your word spread and your kingdom grow. Christ commanded that his word be spread until he returns again. So in his holy name we pray for his kingdom and his messengers. Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.